when one is in constant engagement with the media, whether it be mainstream media or social media, it seems that there are only two factions that exist in the United States of America. That is the preppy progressives and the core conservatives. However, this battle is largely relegated to the media, whether it be Twitter or CNN. Outside of that, there seems to be more peace, less fighting. That is because the reality we live in has a lot of disinterested Americans. They go by uh, with their normal lives. They only care about getting food on the table for their children, getting work done so they can pay the bills, making sure that their children graduate university and become productive members of society. They only pay attention when the political becomes personal. That's why, historically speaking, and and it still is true today, the biggest issue voters deal with is the economy because the economy directly affects their lives. If the economy is not doing well, that means they are unemployed. That means that they can't get food on the table. That, that means that they financially are not in a great spot. And other, another, um, when it comes to other issues, if it directly relates to them, then they would vote, then they would care about that issue. But when it comes to Americans, over, over, overall, Americans mostly care about the economy, not the culture war. However, the culture war is slowly but surely becoming personal. How so? Well, activists, ideologues on primarily the left side of the aisle believe that the personal is political, that every fiber of your being must be used to fight whatever evils they decide that they should fight against on any day of the week, whether it be uh, sexism, racism, white supremacy, whiteness, whatever it may be, it changes every day of the week, but you must relinquish your bodily autonomy, your ability to, to freely think to serve their agenda. So yes, the culture war is becoming personal, whether it be the viral video where a woman comes out angrily telling those who worked at a spa that someone with male genitalia is in fact a male. Or when, or we could talk about Steve Bannon's predictions on Tim Cass IRL's podcast that when the that the mothers are the ones who will become angry when they realize what their children are being taught in September. And we see some of that happening right now with the mask, mask mandates. Today, we will talk about how the apolitical relate to the ongoing political realities in the United States. Because ultimately, the apolitical is the largest faction in our country, and their actions will decide the fate of our country. You are listening to Daniel E. Friends. Today, I have a personal friend on the show. He is the New York City chapter coordinator for FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, a nonpartisan organization that seeks to advance civil liberties for all Americans and to promote a common culture based on fairness, understanding, and humanity. 
Having grown up in Queens, he attended Columbia University, where he served as an active student leader and graduated Phi Beta Kappa in 2019. He is a strong advocate for freedom, for freedom of expression and diversity of thought, especially within his own field, the performing arts. Professionally, he works as he works as a composer, music director, vocalist, teaching and teaching artist, and manages a New York City-based children's choir organization. In his spare time, he enjoys running in the park. His name is Brent Morden. Hi, Brent. How are you? Daniel, great to, great to see you again, and thank you for having me on your show. It's, it's a real honor, real pleasure, and man, how did you know all that about me? That's, that's pretty wild. Yeah, that, that, that is wild. I, I definitely did not copy and paste a bio that you've uh, given me. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> but can I ask you some questions? I, I would like our, my audience to, to know more about you, more than just your bio. Are you down for some questions, Brent? By all means, please ask away. <laughs> well, question one, Brent, a long time ago, you would have called yourself apolitical. What happened? Well, you're right, Daniel. Um, I, I would have called myself apolitical some time ago. And I think it's worth talking about my evolution as far as paying attention to culture and politics, because it's, I think it's a microcosm for many other stories that we're seeing play out among our peers among people in our generation, just regular folks who are living their lives, as you talked about, who would be considered apolitical because I think it's changing. So a bit about my own story. Um, I grew up in Queens, as my, my bio mentioned, as you read, and I, uh, I grew up in a middle class family. I went to public school before going to a magnet school in the Upper East Side, and then I, I attended Columbia University. So I really grew up in this um, default liberal New York City environment. But as a child in my youth, I, I was apolitical. And what does apolitical mean? I think that means we're not overtly engaging in political discourse or action. And so what that looked like in my youth was that I focused my, my time and passion and energy into other things besides culture and politics. You know, I was very focused on academics, very focused on my extracurricular activities, very focused on music, and that served me well. It served me well in high school. I worked hard, I got into a, a top tier university, and but during high school, I, I shied away from political conversations with my friends or my family. You know, I, I grew up in this default liberal environment. And to me, that was enough. There was this general air that progressive policies are good and conservative policies or worldviews are bad. And, you know, I nodded along because why, why raise my voice if I disagree and cause trouble. I wanna keep the peace. I wanna focus on what I wanna focus on, what's important, which is my studies, my grades, all that good stuff, right? I remember at my high school, um, which was Hunter College High School, it's on the Upper East Side, Manhattan. Um, there were a couple, a couple, really, I can count them on one hand, a couple of very outspoken conservatives at my school, which was notable because the environment was predominantly liberal progressive. And I remember the 
general feeling about these people was like, uh, like, like stay, stay away from them. You know, I want nothing to do with them because, you know, those, those viewpoints are, 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 are wrong or intolerant or, or not wanted here. Right. And that's just the environment I grew up in. But at the same time, I wasn't engaging in that conversation. That's what, what made me a political until, until I got to, until I got to college. And so I, I, started Columbia University in fall of 2015. Now, if you remember fall of 2015, which I'm, I'm sure you do, that was a, a, uh, a very hot season for national discourse around social justice. For example, um, the, I think the, the Michael Brown shooting was, it might've been the year prior, but that was still in the national conscience. There was this discussion about gun violence, especially targeted toward racial minorities happening in the national conversation and in, just in the ethos and the general feeling the air, what we see on social media. Around the same time, fall 2015, within college campuses, we had at the University of Missouri, um, administrators were encouraging students to report hateful speech, hateful speech against minorities or people who would be uh, considered within oppressed classes, which I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about, and I'm sure you've you've talked about at length in your podcast uh, what that means. And there was also the the Halloween incident at Yale, where a few individuals wore, I believe, a Native American costume to a Halloween party, and they were castigated. And there were student protests, shouting them down, saying this is offensive, this cannot be tolerated. And so I was witnessing this happen within social media. I was witnessing this play out in the reactions among my peers, my new friends at Columbia. And at Columbia, I noticed that the reactions that I observed in social media, among my peers, even in the classroom during orientation sessions were very knee jerk and driven more by feelings than rational, clear-headed, critical thinking about these issues. And that, I noticed that because it ran counter to my, my deeply held principles and core beliefs, the way I was raised, that free speech is fundamental to a functioning society, right? That civil discourse is important, respectful civil discourse is important, and that we should treat each other as individuals. I was seeing these principles that I was raised within and that I held to a high standard in my own life and worldview be disregarded by people who were quite frankly acting religiously. And I, I, that's what I started noticing. And that's sort of when my apolitical journey started becoming a little bit more political. And I'll talk about what that means and so I noticed um, in my, there was a rift between my public and private life in terms of my engagement with culture and politics, topics in culture and politics. For example, in, in, my, in my public life, even within college, you could not get a read on me as far as what my politics are. And because I wanted to keep it low key, there were more important things to uh, put forth in my public image. For example, 
that I was a student leader, right? I, I led various music and performing arts groups at Columbia, and it was important that I remain politically neutral, just as a figurehead for these groups. I was also an RA. And that's, that's a whole other story. I'll, I'll get to that soon about how for every person, the rubber meets the road. You, talk, you talked about this in your opening monologue. For every person who might not necessarily be engaged in discourse or action when it comes to politics, there is a point at which it invades on their life and they must take action. And so a couple of anecdotes I want to share that illustrate that for me in my own personal journey include um, when I was in freshman year at Columbia, we had this course called University Writing, where we learned about how to write, basically, how to structure arguments in different styles, structure essays. And um, at the end of this course, we had to write an op-ed about a, a topic of our choice. I decided to write about a tradition at Columbia called Orgonite. This is when the marching band, which has a history of being a raucous, uh, fun group of, of party hard people who like to make uh, you know fun jokes, sometimes politically incorrect jokes, put all those politically incorrect jokes together into a script and then go to our main library at the midnight before finals to make a whole bunch of noise and tell these, these raunchy jokes in front of a big crowd of people. And it's, it was always a very controversial tradition at Columbia because there are a lot of humorless people at, in, in the world, but especially within college campuses who hear jokes that they might find potentially offensive and they say we have to get rid of that this is hate speech we have to get rid of it even if it's it's a benign joke and the there's a common understanding that it's it's humor it's it's not meant to be taken seriously there was still a big contingent of people who are like we have to get rid of organite we have to sanitize it and so in my op-ed i responded to that effectively arguing that we should we should let Orgonite happen because humor is humor, right? Humor is not meant to be taken seriously. It is important that we have this um, tradition that brings levity to a stressful period of time. And why don't we give them the benefit of the doubt? We know that nobody in the marching band is like honestly racist or sexist or whatever, they're playing around with ideas in a, in a fun way to provoke some kind of emotion. That's what humor is, right? So I was basically defending the idea of humor and the idea that you could tell a politically incorrect joke because why not? Why not? And so that was really the first moment I felt like, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm speaking freely about a, an issue that I, I've been, that's been on my mind for months and I can actually open up and say, I defend free speech, but it was in private, right? It was within the confines of this assignment. Another example where I, I slowly opened up more towards the public, which is kind of what brings me here today, right? Uh, while I was an RA, we had a lot of, unfortunately, useless training sessions that trained us to be 
servants to certain ideologies rather than training us in actual useful skills that we could apply in serving our community. We had, we had both, absolutely. And the people at Residential Life in Columbia are, are fantastic people who I, I really enjoyed working with, but we had some seminars that I think were not great choices. For example, and this is a very salient anecdote, um, we had a seminar on, uh, on uh, one day, we came into uh, a, nice, a nice room in Columbia Student Center. The chairs were laid out in rows. There was a projector at the front with a, a nicely dressed woman in a pantsuit with a, a smile. And, and the, the topic that we saw projected was microaggressions. Oh boy, everyone's favorite <laughs> subject, right? Microaggressions. And by this point, I think I was in junior or senior year. By this point, I had really opened up my opened up my mind to different perspectives that I, and I, I found some networks of students who shared my values, including that we should be treated as individuals, standing up for free speech and civil discourse, people at Columbia who were kind of quietly observing the ideal, ideological takeover of the classroom and clubs and within the administration, especially. So anyway, we had the seminar on microaggressions. I sat down and I'm like, think to myself, okay, Let's let's see let's see how it goes. Let's see if if our presenter makes any valuable useful points because I come to these things with an open mind. I don't want to make assumptions. Maybe there is a valuable argument that can shift my perspective. And it was the standard battery of, you know, there are uh, you have to be mindful of certain habits of speech that people could perceive as offensive. And and for example, if I ask someone where they're from, even if it's a completely friendly, benign, perfectly reasonable question to ask in small talk that could be perceived as xenophobic and therefore it's it, it must not be tolerated. And, and that speech is a form of violence. That was the thesis of the presentation. And I after the presentation, you know, she's put on her put on her fake smile. And she's like, you know, any questions? Anybody have any questions? I looked around the room and. You know, I see people just kind of just sitting there and looking around and I slowly raised my hand and respectfully said, thank you for your presentation. I disagree with some of the points that you made today and here's why. And so I talked about why I, I, I think the idea that equating speech with violence is harmful because then it justifies using vile, actual physical violence against speech. And because the line gets, where do we, where do we put the line between what is acceptable speech and what is unacceptable speech, right? And there, there are good arguments to be made within that, within that sphere. But bottom line is I raised my hand, I, I raised an objection to what I found to be an objectionable presentation in a respectful, tactful way. And that's when perhaps you could say that was the moment I became political in some ways, right? I'm taking my position on a political or cultural issue and shifting it from the private into the public. After that talk, uh, a, a few of my peers, a few of my fellow RAs came up to me in private and they said, you know, some things along the lines of Brent, you're very brave. You know, we were all thinking it. Thank you for saying that. You know, I didn't really want to say it because I didn't know how people would react or what what would happen or if people might think that I'm, you know, I, I, I don't uh, subscribe to the right ideas. And people thank me for my bravery in just speaking my mind. That was a very powerful moment. And 
Now the question is, and I, I know I'm going on for a while and we'll get into our discussion. No, 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 this is good. This is good. Yeah. The, the question is, were, were, was I necessarily becoming political? Because at that point and throughout my entire life, I've really considered myself to be a political independent. Um, you know, I, in, in 2016, just by virtue of having grown up in this default New York City liberal environment and not really questioning that, by default, I, I supported Democrats in the 2016 election without really thinking much about it. And so that's, that was when I was more apolitical, but I've always been a political independent in terms of my worldview. I have some more liberal tendencies and some more conservative tendencies, but there are certain ideas and we'll talk about this. And this is something you alluded to in your opening monologue. There are certain ideas that do transcend politics and they should transcend politics, but they're becoming more political ideas like freedom of speech. When there is an, uh, an argument among the social justice activist class, especially on college campuses that um, silence is violence or that speech is violence. You know, you've kind of covered every single base. If you're, if you're uh, silent about an issue, then, then that is a form of aggression. If you speak out against it, that's a form of aggression. Then the issue of something as universal, you might think, as we should be able to speak our minds becomes political or something as universal as, I would hope, the idea that we should treat each other as individuals. Or, or have a baseline level of respect and tolerance and understanding for each other, that suddenly becomes a politically charged position. And this is something that we're all noticing, we're all feeling, and is bringing a lot of people who might otherwise be apolitical, who might otherwise not be overtly engaged in political or cultural discourse into political or cultural discourse. And we're seeing, I'm seeing that, especially within FAIR. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about FAIR later in our discussion for sure. Um, that's, that's, my, that's my spiel for now. Do you have any, any um, take, it, yeah. take it away from there. Yeah, I, I, I was, yeah. so I, I, had a, uh, I took a few notes and that there was a few points that you've made that, that is uh, definitely worth us uh, talking about you know the apolitical may uh, think that well now I have to get into politics and whatnot but what is really happening is that now philosoph the, the philosophical underpinnings of our civilization is now up for political debate and so it gives the veneer that you are now uh, in a political sphere but you are really fighting for the soul of not only our nation but the for, for the soul of western civilization you talk about how um you know you object to uh or, or you reject uh this almost religious like uh response to to uh certain uh events that happened um in, uh, across ivies you said that uh, there were students at yale who uh got in trouble for uh after guess uh cultural appropriation um, and what you what you were uh, essentially talking about there was a Socratic dialectic, you know, this when when you wanted to ask questions uh, in that what was it a seminar was it a it was a seminar, yeah it right? was it was basically a workshop 
that workshop was okay. training so, for RAs. Yeah. And so when you were talking about the workshop, you talked about how you wanted to ask questions, right? That you don't want to just take whatever uh, is being said at face value. And you said that you disagree with X and Y about um, speech being violence, uh, uh, about speech being violence. And you gave your logical reasoning as to why uh, if speech is violence, what would happen next? Uh, or what would happen as a result. And so a lot of people or a lot of people who are uh, subscribed to this ideology, they would contend that you're, 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 you questioning that, that uh, speech is violence uh, as a white male is a form of white supremacy, right? And so essentially what they're po uh, postulating is that the Socratic dialectic of exchanging ideas and and getting closer to the truth. You give your idea X. I believe that silence, that that violence, or that speech is violence. But I give my idea Y. I I don't agree for this reasons, and then we chip off the the what's erroneous in our arguments, and we come to um, the truth, which is uh, I mean it, it is expressed when um, uh, Socrates was talking to you. Uh, I believe his name was Euphrates. Um, on the the steps of the courthouse, um, when he when he talked about why Euphrates, uh, Euphrates wanted to um, convict his or he wanted to convict his his father of of murder, they're essentially saying that the Socratic dialectic. You know, uh, every student, especially in New York City, has had a Socratic seminar. You know, where they had to sit in a circle and they talked about uh i uh, where they answered questions and had discussions with their peers in a circle and then there's like the outer circle and you have to take the notes in the inner circle um i don't know if they did it uh that way when you were in school uh brent but that's uh, that's uh, my experience when i was in when i was in um middle school as well and it, it did it a bit in high school this is the result the socratic dialectic equating uh is being equated as a form of white supremacy is the result of, I would say, um, or it must be that that must be a postulation if you want full obedience from everyone else. And so, and so your your fight to question what you're uh, learning is not a political issue; it is a philosophical. Uh, issue that we've run into that because if, if yeah, it, it is a philosophical issue that, that we've run into with the alternative being full obedience. And so that was just, just something I wanted to note in your, um, in the, in the story that you gave. Um, and so Brent's story is really like most people's stories, you know, sitting down and focusing on the academics, perhaps, so you could be uh, create a better future for yourself, and then having to end up uh, deal with this woke orthodoxy. And, and so, Brent, I have, a, I have a second question for you. Um, when I talk to my apolitical friends, there seems to be a, a distinction between woke and politics, and we sort of tapped on this question already. You know, talking about how it is masked, it is seen as a political issue, but it's really a philosophical issue. And I really do believe that wokeism is a philosophical um is a more philosophical uh orient or like it's, it's more philosophical in orientation but its activist dimension demands that po politics is used as a tool to push uh the that philosophical orientation 
knowing this, what how do we what strategy should we take to fight wokeism? And what is wokeism, by the way? Give us your definition. I think the audience has they they've had enough of my definitions of wokeism and critical race theory and whatnot. What is Brett Morden's definition of wokeism? And now that now that we know that this is truly a philosophical battle between Western liberal values and this new um, illiberal um, woke, uh, these liberal illiberal woke attitudes. How do we? What's the strategy? How do we fight this? Right. The that's a great question, and I think it's important as you recognize and we both recognize to clarify what wokeism means and it's the way that i've experienced it and the way that i've I've seen it play out and perhaps both of us and perhaps the world has seen it play out is that it's a it's a dogmatic quasi-religious worldview that marries elements of and i'll i'll explain what each of these mean elements of postmodernism with marxism and activism and to the layperson, if you if you just tell that to a layperson, they're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about, which is why, for example, um, Jordan Peterson, who has done incredible work in illuminating the criticisms of ideology on both sides of the aisle, talks a lot about postmodernist neo-Marxism, but that doesn't really mean something to the layperson. And we're talking to lay people here because that's really the apolitical class and wokeism combines postmodernism, which posits that truth is subjective. And right, if, if we accept that, the next question is, if truth is subjective, how do we determine what's true? And then the next step above that is that there is a, a, an oppressor and oppressed class or classes in society of people who are oppressed and oppressors. And those are based on certain characteristics for example, race or gender or sexual orientation, and that there is a power struggle between them. And those who are powerful define what is true. And then there's an activist element which says, we must overthrow or dismantle, that's an often used term, dismantle the systems that are oppressing the oppressed. And because that is what is good, and we must do away with what is evil, and there's a fundamental good versus evil dichotomy baked into this worldview. All of these, all of this uh, creates a soup of what we might call woke. And we see it play out in many different ways. And I think you're right that it's fundamentally a philosophical point of view rather than a political point of view. For example, the, there, are, there are certain concepts that I believe we should in America, as Americans all agree on within our common culture, that we should have, we should treat each other as individuals. Let's just take that idea that everybody has individual merit and that we should treat one another as individuals, as composite individuals based on the content of our character and not the color of our skin, to quote Martin Luther King Jr. That idea is a philosophical idea. Right. It's not necessarily political, but it's becoming political, because now if you argue, if I if I treat somebody as an individual, then people who are within the woke category or mindset would say, oh, 
you, um, you know, you have to take, you have to consider that uh, their um, identities, that they might have a, a identities that are within the oppressed category. And the question is, you know, how do you respond to that? Like, what is, what is the end goal of that kind of philosophy? And the reason it becomes, how it becomes political is that it creeps up into policy, right? Wokeism is, is a cultural phenomenon, but culture and politics are not necessarily separate. There's a good case to be made that culture feeds into politics and vice versa. For example, the civil rights movement was a, a originally cultural movement to, to change the way that people think within, within culture. Same with the gay rights movement. It was a cultural movement that created political change to enact legislation and policies that ensured rights for everybody and ensured that people would not be discriminated against based on the color of their skin or their sexual orientation. Similarly, the, the woke mindset that we have to dis dismantle the systems that are oppressing us and uh, overemphasize our immutable characteristics over our individual selves is a cultural phenomenon that we're seeing play out in corporate settings. We're seeing it play out in Hollywood, arts and entertainment. We're seeing it play out in our children's classrooms, for example, college classrooms, right? I experienced that. You're experiencing that now as a student yourself. And this is having political ramifications because people are electing representatives who represent this cultural idea or represent the culture. And then policies that uh, policies follow from that, that might not necessarily be in the best interest of the people. And so I want, I want to stick with the, the, the political point real quick uh, before you like continue to explain uh, wokeism in other, in other uh, maybe different uh, uh, lenses. You talk about uh, truth being subjective, you know, the, the postmodern element of, of wokeism, which is truth being subjective. Uh, and when you add an element of um, uh, critical theory, that truth is subjective and, and whatever is deemed the uh, official uh, narrative uh, uh, of truth that is being imposed by a supposed oppressor, uh, which in critical race theory is the white, uh, whites um, and gender, uh, critical gender theory would be um, men, the patriarchy. Uh, when, it, when we're talking about gender ideology, it would be the uh, heteronormative, um, whatever jargon that they come up with uh, on, the, on every day of the week. But this idea that truth is objective is not a, is not a political point. It is a philosophical point that, uh, that we have in, uh, in America and in the West. And truth, because truth is objective and truth establishes more order, because when we know what is going on in the world, we can then act in the world in a uh, safe manner, in a manner that uh, keeps us, uh, that helps us improve as well. Like, for example, you have the Empire State Building behind you. If if we didn't know the truth of um, different uh, mechanics that goes into making a building that tall, 
then that building would be fundamentally unsafe or we wouldn't even be able to build it at all, right? And so truth, objective truth is the highest value in Western philosophy and Western and and Western um in the Western value hierarchy. But if truth is not power, right? Power, uh, truth being power expressed by an oppressor, um, then power is the highest value. And what is the quickest way to achieve power? That is politics, because government acts as an enforcing uh, body, right? The government restricts, right? The government will imprison you if you break the law, right? The government is a, a restrictive body, a, a body that forces you into, uh, com it compels you to do certain things. And that's why we uh, have a limited government, that's uh, why we believe in limited government, because that means that the government can't compel us to do everything it, it wants us to do. But if truth equals power expressed by whites, let's just say critical race theory, whites, for example, power in the eyes of the woke is the highest value because we need to, they need to get the power to dismantle whiteness, which can be most effectively done through wielding uh, uh, government, government tools. Right. Say. And and a concrete example of exactly what you're talking about is what our, our, uh, our associate, our uh, friend Kenny Shu uh, wrote about in An Inconvenient Minority and the subject of his writing, which includes the Harvard discrimination case against Asian Americans. And in short, um, Harvard, other institutions as well, and specialized high schools in screen schools around the country, including New York City, systemically have capped the number of Asian Americans that are allowed into their schools um, because Asian Americans disproportionately excel at the factors that lead them to admission. And because of that, politics has been wielded as a tool um, against Asian Americans in this way and has been wielded as a tool to bring down the hammer of social justice, whatever that means, even if it is not actually just to, to employ tactics that limit the number of people who are allowed admission into a school based on race. And so politics is being wielded as a tool for ideology these days, and that's how that's how culture and politics are intermingling, right? Yeah, yes. So now that we've explained what wokeism is, I think my, uh, the audience now has a, uh, they have a better feel of what this wokeism be, uh, what wokeism is. What, how, how do we, we fight, this? now that we know the terrain, we know that this is inherently a philosophical battle rather than a political battle. How do we go about, uh, trying to solve this issue? Well, this, is a, this is a big question, uh, of course, but um, what, what would you say is, because, what would you say, all right, is the way to fight this inherently uh, political? Do we have to clap back politically or is there other things we should be doing as well to fight against uh, the, the new orthodoxy? That's a great question. 
And I'll, I'll begin by sharing more another anecdote about how we're seeing change happen in the real world along these lines. In New York City, there is a battle raging on to preserve gifted and talented programs within high schools and middle schools, and similarly to preserve screens, academic screens that test children by objective measures in order to get into competitive high schools, like my own Hunter College High School. There is a battle to preserve these because there is a group of administrators, bureaucrats, teachers, union leaders who say that objective measures that screen students based on merit, how they perform on a test is, is racist. Um, Kenny Shu has talked about this at length. And the response to that has been an overwhelming number of parents within the New York City education system who are raising their children to value hard work and to value individual merit, to value the idea that if you work hard, you will succeed. These parents are fighting back. And how are they fighting back? They're fighting back by electing representatives to city education councils. This has been one of the major important uh, advocacy work that PLACE has done. PLACE is Parent Leaders for Accelerated Curriculum and Education. It's a organization of parent leaders in New York City that is, as the name suggests, advocating for accelerated curriculum, gifted and talented programs. And PLACE identifies leaders within the community, parents who are motivated because before they were apolitical, they were just living their lives, right? They were, they have a job, they have a family, they want to support themselves and their family and not have to worry about stuff like, you know, my, my child's honors math program was scrapped because it's racist apparently, but then it starts affecting their lives and then they start speaking up. How are they speaking up? They're sending emails to their principals. They're networking with parents who share their concerns and share their values and also want to see meaningful change. And then they are electing members to their school boards or city education councils, which are advisory boards for the DOE, to advocate for uh, positions such as we must preserve gifted and talented programs because it provides equal opportunity to students regardless of race. That's how actual change is being made. And that's one example. Another example is what what we're both doing now right we're having a conversation we're making our viewpoints heard and it takes courage to stand up for your principles and values to speak your mind when what you say even if it's rational and respectful and worthy of debate could be interpreted as harmful or intolerant and that must be silenced. It takes courage and there are ways people are doing it. I'll share you a few because this also ties into the work of FAIR. A lot of parents 
who want to see a better educational environment for their children, these are a lot of parents I'm interfacing with, engaging with through FAIR and through PLACE, they are crafting respectful emails that they send to their ch child's teacher or their child's principal or to their school board saying something to the effect of, I have this concern about what my child is learning in the classroom, or I have this concern that my child will not be afforded an equal opportunity in his or her school, and I want to make my voice heard. That's a small way that you can affect change. It doesn't have to be big. You can start small. You can start by questioning something that you're seeing in the world that you encounter. That's what I did, right? That's what I did when I raised my hand in that seminar about microaggressions. And I said, I don't know if I, I disagree with what you're saying. Are you sure that this is the right thing to teach us or instill within us? Questioning what you're encountering is a way that people who are ordinarily apolitical when push comes to shove can fight for or advocate for their values or common sense reason reasonable principles. Other ways include writing op-eds. That's what a lot of people have done. FAIR in, in particular has highlighted, has brought to the forefront uh, many incredible stories of individuals who spoke out against an injustice in their school, for example. A lot of teachers, a few teachers who were in meetings that were that talked about dividing kids up by race or teaching kids um, a, an identity politics way of looking at the world of learning subjects like math or English. And these teachers said, this does not align with my values. This is wrong. There's something wrong with this. And they had the courage to stand up or put pen to paper and make their voice heard. That's not easy. And it has consequences for a lot of these people, which is why mo many, many people who agree with common, uh, with, who agree with ideas as common sense and reason-based that we should treat each other with respect, or we should not div uh, divide, be divided by intolerant ideologies, are remaining silent, and instead choosing not to engage. Because in this day and age of social media, where and where the line between public and private is being blurred, where something you say in private could be blasted out to the public, in this day and age, there are consequences for speaking your mind. But that doesn't mean it, it, it that does not mean we have we must silence ourselves because it is so important to speak up for our values. And again. I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps going in circles a bit, but yeah. that's really what it comes down to speaking the truth. And when we encounter something that we find is objectionable, whoever you are, right? Even if you're a progressive and you're living in a, a in like a super conservative city or a super conservative state, and you encounter an idea that you find objectionable, you have a duty to yourself, I believe, and to life, to the world, to God, perhaps, to, to make your voice heard.
And that's what a lot of parents, especially parents, as as far as my experience goes, that's what a lot of parents are doing nowadays. And it is actually creating change slowly, but surely. But surely. That was a beautiful monologue. I'm going to head over to the, the third question. You had the NYC chapter at FAIR. How does that give normal Americans a platform to verse, voice their concerns? Right. So uh, I'll just take, take a quick sip before I, I enter. Yeah, don't worry. And this relates to what, what I was just talking about. Um, you know, through my, through my work with the New York City chapter of FAIR, which, as you mentioned, is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that um, seeks to advance civil liberties and rights for all Americans and promote this common culture, a pro-human culture based on fairness, understanding, and tolerance. Much of my work has been engaging with people who reach out discreetly, privately, saying, I'm concerned, I'm scared about the direction that my child's school, my workplace, the media is going in, the culture I see on social media or within my circles of friends, I'm concerned about the direction it's going and I want to do something about it, even though I've never really been political ever in my life. There are a lot of people who are saying, you know, I've been, I've been, I see responses and I I don't want to give away any personal information, but a lot of uh, common threads I'm seeing is that I've been like a liberal or Democrat my entire life, but I'm seeing that a lot of the ideas that Democrats or progressives are pushing um, don't align with my values. And I don't know what to do because if I speak out against it, then my friends will think that I'm um, fill in the blank. Right. Yeah. And I think this yeah. goes, this goes on, this goes for both sides, but, and I'll speak to that point. What is fair is part of the, part of the brilliance of fair is that it is nonpartisan. Fair highlights common values and principles that everybody across the political spectrum can agree on, such as, you know, treating each other as individuals, building bridges, defeating injustice, not people, and and choosing love, not hate. Because we all want, and this is something Daryl Davis talks about a lot more eloquently than I could, we all want certain fundamental things in life, every single human, right? We want to be loved, we want to be heard, we want to be respected, and because FAIR recognizes these common ideals that elevate our humanity yeah there are every everybody across the political spectrum is seeing an organization like fair and recognizing wow this they are they are saying what needs to be said in this moment we have people across the board of advisors who are you know plenty of conservative political commentators progressive political commentators but we can all agree on certain fundamental values and that's what is drawing a lot of what you might what you I, you call normie Americans, people who are just are just ordinary folks, right, living their lives, drawing them to an organization like Fair that they see as a beacon of hope to restore sanity, common sense, 
to places like our children's classrooms and what what is fair actually doing right that's that's the that's the real question yeah fair big part of fair's work and i think is and what is so important is education this zoom uh uh era of learning has opened a lot of parents eyes to what their children are learning in the classroom specifically how it's becoming more infused with woke ideology and fair is highlighting this and giving concrete examples because parents are now waking up to this right fair is educating on what is when your when your child learns about an idea like intersectionality yeah. or in the classroom or the idea of privilege or the idea of systemic racism which are now being introduced in public school curricula what does that actually mean why is it problematic as a a favorite term of uh people who are ideologically driven but i i think it's it serves us here why are those ideas problematic <laughs> and what can you do and fair also gives you an outline of what you can do. Their affairs developed um, a fantastic set of resources called uh, their advocacy toolkit, which gives an outline if, if you are a parent, if you are a teacher or a student who sees something in the world, something in your own pocket of the world that you find objectionable and want to speak out against and uplift a better alternative, this is what you can do, including emailing, including reaching out to people who might share your values and penning op-eds and it's giving people who are in the middle of the road a platform to all right um, be represented I'll, I'll finish here i know i know we want to wrap up to be to find a representation because the apolitical as you mentioned earlier were a lot of us are not really represented. There's a huge contingent of independent Americans who feel politically homeless within our polarized culture, myself included many times. I'm still political independent. And where in, in, in a culture where things are so polarized, you know, what do I turn to? I think FAIR recognizes this problem, recognizes that a lot of apolitical Americans are grappling with these issues and as providing a solution for us. And it's, it's a work in progress as we all are. Brad, that was another great monologue. Final question would be the greatest issue that you think is facing America right now. I sort of think that it is along the lines of what we, what we've been talking about so far, but uh, if you can give us a brief, uh, what do you a brief answer what do you think is a the biggest issue facing america the biggest issue facing america well if if this were a if this were a medical podcast i would probably say heart disease but since this is a uh this is a more culture and society and politics oriented podcast and we want to we want to stick to the themes we've been addressing today i would say that tribalism and political polarization, not necessarily political, just polarization across every axis. We are being drawn apart more and more. 
the institutions, our colleges are becoming more heavily progressive in the uh, professorate class. And there's growing intolerance toward other viewpoints. Same thing, even on the extreme right, there's growing intolerance toward liberal or progressive points of view. We're just becoming more polarized as Americans. We are, when we see our fellow man or woman, we look at them increasingly noticing their immutable characteristics rather than thinking about who they are as an individual. The biggest problem facing America is that we are not seeing each other as individuals as much as we should. When I see you, when you see me, or when we see anybody on the street, why, why think and make assumptions about them simply based on what you see? Because there is more than meets the eye to everybody. Everybody has their own history and personal story. Everybody has their own background and struggles and joys, right? Everyone has their own dreams and ambitions and ideas because it's about ideas. When it comes to what we wanna fight or uplift in our political discourse, it's about ideas, not people because our humanity is what matters. We all deserve love and respect. We all deserve to be heard and we all deserve to be treated as composite individuals because that's who we are. That is what the reality is. And the world becomes a better place when we recognize each other for our value, individual value, rather than making assumptions based on identity characteristics. So, and I believe that is what the, that's what the solution looks like to a lot of the polarization we're seeing today is just returning to this common idea of treating each other as individuals, treating each other based on our character and who we are as people, rather than things that really should not matter as much, like sex or race or, or any of that. Because there are more important things in life and what is important is our humanity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the thing that transcends your your gender, your your sex, your skin color, your ethnicity is the fact that you're able to that you have the logos that you're able to create order from words. Uh, just as uh, God is the word and the word is God, you are able to articulate certain ideas on a piece of paper, and those ideas uh, will then be able to create a skyscraper that, that then can create the one world trade and cars and buildings and chairs. And, you know, uh, because everybody, uh, have that ability, you know, the ability to, uh, God-like ability of, of consciousness, uh, not something that's uh, only limited to the white race or the, the male gender and whatnot. We should all be uh, treating each other, uh, treating each other, uh, as essentially children of god if uh if you if you're more religious and you and you cash cash exactly that. so I, I think that's that's really my main takeaway if if i want anybody to take away something from um our conversation and and my appearance on your show today is that treat each other as individuals with love and dignity and respect it's it's the golden rule right do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
let's return to that and see what happens. Yes. So, uh, Brent, we, we, through the questions that I've asked, we've actually tackled the first key point, which is when the political become personal. We've talked about forcing the apolitical into the arena. We talked about silence is violence when you were talking about um, the workshop that you had. And we talked about the philosophical mechanism that created that good and evil uh, dichotomy, you know, the oppressive versus oppressed. Um, and so let's talk about the apolitical responses or like the responses to the political uh, becoming personal and what different scenario and, you know, uh, talking about different scenarios. So the first of that is, um, you know, the apolitical can just do nothing in response to uh, this new orthodoxy. What would that look like? That would look like what it looked like for me when I was in high school. Um, again, I was I was not very engaged in conversation about culture and politics in, in high school. And as a result, I basically went along with the political environment that I grew up in, which was predominantly liberal progressive, New York City, going to school in Manhattan, right? And that's what it would look like. And this also goes for if you're an individual living in a, a predominantly conservative environment. If you were apolitical, then you would probably go along just with the political environment that you grow up in, which informs how you vote. That's voting is ultimately what leads to policy. And that's, I think, what, what matters as far as the political arena goes. And so if the apolitical were to do nothing, it would just be going, going along with the default environment that they live in, for better or worse. And, 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 and what, what are the effects of that? Well, I, I would contend that um, because uh, the world believe that uh, neutrality is also sin, uh, if you have to affirm their beliefs in order to uh, be uh, quote unquote good on, on, you know, good on their terms, I, I would contend that the, the effects of, of this would be drastic, like would be uh, drastic uh, when we're talking, not when not just talking about, not when just talking about like American politics, but American cultural life as well. We would have the silencing of uh, a clear supermajority of Americans. Yes, I think to answer your question of what, what would be the effects of a apolitical people or people who are not really or a, a political people seeing what's going on and deciding to take no action then then the people who do take action are the ones who determine the fate of their community or more broadly the country the people who are the vocal minorities or the people who are just vocal and inspiring uh it, it, making impressions on people will determine the course of things because we're impressionable. Human beings are impressionable. And this points to a question of like, how do we, how are we convinced of our positions of like, when we go to the ballot box, for example, or when we vote for a politician, what informs our decision? I think for a lot of people, a lot of people just see D or R and and check down D or R because they're familiar and they have a sense of warm feelings toward one party and cold feelings toward another party. 
And that's what the effects would be if people are not engaging in the flip side would be if people are thinking critically about the issues that they're seeing in the world, about the people that they are electing to represent them, even in places like school boards, then meaningful change can happen as it is happening within city education councils in New York City with with help from organizations like place. And in in Lev's podcast, our podcast episode, we talk about the authoritarian crackdown. Uh, do you think that there would be a rise in authoritarianism um, from or what uh, the rising a rising authoritarianism akin to maybe Soviet the Soviet Union? Uh, do you see that potentially being a possibility in the future? It may not be next year, but it could be in, in the next decade, maybe two decades or so. Well, and by the way, Love contended no. Uh, he he contended that he contended that um, that what happened in the Soviet Union was way worse. So I wanted to get your opinions on it. Yeah, I also have a my I have a, a family history with the Soviet Union because my both my parents and their families uh, effectively fled the Soviet Union in order to find a better life for their children in America, because America represented the idea and what became the reality of freedom and the American dream, the idea that if you work hard, then you could succeed based on your individual merit. And is that, if, if you're asking if that's under, under jeopard, in jeopardy in America, I think it is, right? I think it is in jeopardy, but Hope is not lost. If you're thinking, if we're thinking also just more broadly about um, authoritarianism creeping into our daily lives, honestly, I think we're seeing this already play out in places like uh, New York City with vaccine mandates or mask mandates. Regardless of your position on either vaccines or masks, I think we can all get a sense, get, get, feel a little bit uneasy that government bureaucrats are forcing us to do things with our body that we might not necessarily want to do for whatever reason. That, you know, the, the common libertarian argument, one that I'm sympathetic to, is, you know, you uh, live your life however you want to live your life. Do whatever you want to do, but un until it starts encroaching on my freedoms. And we're starting to feel how government policies are encroaching on our freedoms nowadays. Yeah. That's bringing a lot more apolitical people into the political arena. But as far as, well, I don't, I don't, I'm a little bit more optimistic about the future of America because I still believe in the founding principles of our nation um, that, you know, we, everybody here is, is born free and deserves life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the function of government to preserve those. And the ideas that are outlined in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, I still believe in those principles. And I believe that enough people believe in them too, that we, it, it would be difficult to see a full authoritarian takeover of America, perhaps in small pockets, 
perhaps in small pockets or different states. I know there there are certain states that are more freedom oriented than others. So would you you say that, would you predict that maybe uh, as places like New York City and California become more authoritarian and the apolitical witness that authoritarian crackdown, uh, whether it be in California and Oregon, where uh, the state is literally using CPS to take a child uh, child protective services to take your child away if you do not agree that they uh, are a different gender now. Uh, or whether it be in New York City with the vaccine mandates and the passport, the vaccine passports and whatnot. Do you think that, do you think that uh, your optimism is because those um, apolitical Americans would then move to more freedom, a loving states, and then perhaps after these um, cities, these very blue cities have their downfall when it comes to tax revenue, when it comes, yeah, when it comes to tax revenue, uh, property value, uh, property, like property tax revenue and whatnot, those decrease and just because the, the style of living there is so untenable that it had they have to have a reset sort of like with eric adams uh in a way um that was, that was a loaded question i right. mean let me make it more succinct succinct do you think the 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 very american you know idea of states being um uh, states being different, like experiments, and when the apolitical witness the authoritarianism of certain leaders within New York City and Los Angeles and whatnot, that they would move to more uh, freedom-oriented states, which w- w- which would will um, cause a comeback uh, or a resurgency of normal. Nor- normal liberal politics within New York City, as with I mean, we've seen it. Uh, to a small extent with Eric Adams uh, uh, earlier this summer. Do you think that's the case? Well, we, we, have, we have been seeing a migration of people out of states that are imposing policies that decrease the quality of life for regular people, such as in New York and California. We've seen, a, especially in the last two years, uh, we've seen mass migration. That's why New York just lost a congressional seat as owing to the 2020 census, Texas gained a congressional seat. I think we see a lot of people um, like how like how gas fills up a room and and or like electrons try to find the 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 place that gives it that they're the most comfortable in to yeah. to kind of a lay person. If I uh, uh, physics, for example, people are are drawn to the place where they can live their lives in the most free way and but not everybody has that opportunity right i don't have that opportunity just based on the circumstances of my life and i think a lot of people myself included are choosing to stay and 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 fight in a way to make our voices heard and try to affect local change that will work its way upward to more regional state change that's why a lot of parents in New York City, instead of fleeing, some parents have fled, a lot of parents are choosing to stay and fight, advocate for causes that matter to them and their children, like a fair treatment of history in the classroom or for gifted and talented programs. I think that's another way to affect change. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a fight or flight. 
thing. Yeah. Um, and the people who are in the middle who are neither fighting nor flighting. They didn't, they didn't get the adrenaline response yet. So they're not, they're not feeling the flames yet. Right. Those are the people who I think are, are the subject of our, of our talk today in, in some way, the, the apolitical um, who are so important because yeah. their decisions matter for the future of their communities, their cities, their states, and. Okay, Brett, good answer. So I want to, I want to get into the case for saying no, because I, usually what I hear from uh, the friends who don't really uh, care about politics, who sees what's going on with the woke and whatnot, but they just don't care about politics. They'll just, they'll, they'll say, well, why do I need to stick, stick my neck out? It, it doesn't seem like a good uh, maybe a return on investment, maybe, uh, or whatever uh, metric you may use. They, they, they see this, bubbling up, but they don't want to lose their friends. They don't want to maybe, in, in my case, uh, mess up their college apps. You know, what is the case for saying no? In your saying, opinion. Saying no to um, things you might encounter, ideas you might encounter, or policies or attitudes that run contrary to, to your personal beliefs, right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, uh, particularly with what's going on with the uh, those who believe in uh, the critical social justice movement. Well, if, if you remain silent, then there will be consequences, right? Like, for example, um, in many public school districts around the country, New York City included, there are pushes to introduce um, you know, teaching that's based on diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Words that sound nice and could be concepts that are talked about in a fair and respectful and reasonable way, but unfortunately are often covers for cynical, intolerant ideologies that pit us against each other based on characteristics like race or gender, which shouldn't matter as much as our individual selves. Then if you just remain silent when you see that your child is reading Ibram X. Kendi in the classroom, don't be surprised when there are consequences. For example, if your child is going against your what you how you raise them or for example if your local government is enacting policies that you find objectionable that you think encroach on your freedoms then if you remain silent then don't be surprised when it continues right we neither of us you know i didn't have to i didn't have to go down this path right in my life, when I was in college and I saw protests on campus uh, spouting out these, you know, popular social justice buzzwords and slogans like, uh, you know, silence is violence and all that for various causes like BDS, which is a whole thing at Columbia specifically, or for, um, you know, against racial injustice. If I had just seen these or if I had 
just went along with my RA training seminar about microaggressions. Um, and, or if I just went along with what we learned in the classroom about uh, systemic racism or learning about, I, I had some classes where we looked at certain musical concepts through the lens of critical theory. If I remained silent, in many cases I did, in many cases I did, and because I did, I suffered a little bit. I suffered through classes or conversations or seeing posts on social media that made me cringe. And that is, that is the result of me remaining silent. And I, I reached that breaking point. I think I, I reached the point where the rubber meets the road, which everybody has their own threshold. I reached that point where I, I could no longer be silent about these issues in not only in private, but in public, which is why I got involved with with FAIR. And so, again, the case for saying that this case for speaking your speaking your mind, raising your voice, making your making yourself heard is because. It matters. Your perspective matters. Your voice matters and it can be you never know how saying something, taking the courageous step to speak up for your values or principles can inspire others to do the same or affect change. I could have remained silent during that seminar. I could have just kept my hand down and then nobody would come up to me afterwards and say, thank you for your bravery and saying that we were all thinking at Brent. I could have just remained silent, but there is, a, there is an opportunity cost. Um, there, there's always a trade-off and the same with making your voice heard. There is, we are, we are taking a risk, right? By having a, a civil, respectful conversation about controversial topics, we are taking a risk, but the risk is worth the reward in many cases because the reward is creating meaningful, positive change in the way that people think about the world. And the way that people think about the world informs how they act and informs how they vote. And how you act matters. So that's why it's important to speak your mind and tell the truth. Fundamentally, it comes back to telling the truth. Because if you don't tell the truth, then, then chaos ensues. And if you can live with that, by all means, I can't live with that. And I, I don't think we can live with that. That all right, that was such a, a great monologue. I almost want to end the episode with that, but I'm going to include a few points. You make a great point about, um, about the consequences and how it is going to come at some point. There's going to be consequences for saying something and saying nothing. You have to understand that. You know, a lot of people come to me and say, well, I'm scared that I'm going to be canceled. I'm scared that this X, Y, or Z is going to happen to me. You have to understand that if you say something, if you don't say anything now, you're simply kicking the can down the, the road. Uh, and the more you kick the can down the road, maybe it accumulates more dust. It becomes uh, the, the consequences become more uh uh, become worse, right? Maybe right now, if you said no, uh, if you uh, if you said no right now, maybe your coworkers uh, may uh, try to cancel you. 
maybe you had to go through a DEI program at your at your company, but at least you're saying no to the school board so that so that your child doesn't have to bear that as well. But if you didn't say anything at that point, well, now a few years later, your child is coming home and uh, uh, and reprimanding you for the grave sin of respecting everybody despite the color of their skin. And I would uh, I would contend that the the latter consequence is way worse than the former. You know, being reprimanded, uh, rep, uh, chastised by your coworkers who you probably shouldn't even be uh, friends with anyway. If they uh, if they want to or if they're willing to chastise you that quickly without really going in and asking the, 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 the proper questions, you know, but, but ultimately other than that point, I'm going to have to leave it off of that monologue. That, that was a fantastic way to answer that question, Brent. For now, we're going to uh, leave off, uh, leave, leave you off with what you just heard just now. If you like this episode, make sure you like and subscribe, make sure you comment down on what you thought about, uh, Brent's appearance. Did you agree with Brent? Do you disagree with Brent? Let me know down in the comments. We're going to leave clips up so you can check out Brent's brilliant uh, mind uh, when it comes to different issues, whether it comes to explaining wokeism, whether it comes to, again, like his monologue just now, the case for saying no. And other than that, I'll check, I'll see you guys later. Peace.